Well, good morning, church. Thank you, Matt, for sharing our scripture reading this morning. We are jumping in this morning into our, our summer sermon series. We're going to be spending this uh, eight weeks of, of June and July in the book of First Thessalonians. And uh, just looking forward to uh, this series as we talk about what it looks like to have faith in uncertain times. And uh, we are definitely living in uncertain times and have been for uh, quite a while now. In fact, we could always say... Uh, biblically, that we're always living in some regard in uncertain times because we live in a sin-broken world. But we could also say as believers that we are living in certain times because we know the promises of our God. And so there's both of these things in balance, especially in the Christian life. And so as we talk about these things, my task today is to lay a foundation now, for any of you who have ever engaged in, in building a house, the laying of the foundation is not the most exciting part of the building process. And so uh, this may not be the most exciting of sermons in this series. It probably won't be. Uh, but I hope that I'll be able to do more than just dig a hole this morning that these other guys are going to have to help me climb out of in the coming weeks. But we're going to share this series among our pastors uh, this summer and uh, so I'm excited for you to hear from them as well as we work together through this book of First Thessalonians. I'm going to lay a little bit of a historical foundation, and then I'm going to lay a little bit of a thematic foundation this morning so you can see some of the themes of this book that we're going to see again and again as we work through uh, this series this summer. Let's talk a little bit about uh, where this book begins. It says that it's written here by Paul. We know him as the Apostle Paul, even though he doesn't take up that uh, particular title in this, in this letter. Uh, his companion, Silvanus, who's also known as Silas, and uh, Timothy, who was very much uh, mentored by the Apostle Paul, we regarded as his son in the faith. And it says it was written to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the beginning of this book, laying out who it's from, who it's to. So let's talk about, for a few minutes this morning, and if you're not a, a history person, try not to doze off during this. I really want to just lay for you a bit of a history so you can understand the folks that Paul is writing to here, the unique situation that existed in the first century church at Thessalonica. Uh, the city of Thessalonica, a couple of facts, was founded around 315 B.C. So this is an old city. It was founded during the time of Alexander the Great, if you remember that name uh, from history. It was actually named after Alexander's half-sister. And, and by the time of the first century in which Paul is writing this letter, uh, this was a very important, this was a key city in that part of the world known as Macedonia. It was a city of about 200,000 people, which in that time made it one of the larger cities in the known world. This was a, a metropolis of its day. You can begin to think about cities like New York City or Los Angeles. This is a, a major city in that part of the world, probably second only to Athens in that part of the world, in, there in, in Greece. 
Still today, this is one of the few cities that is talked about in biblical times that still exists today. You can actually go and visit modern-day Thessalonica, and it's still a thriving city, a population of about 300,000. So you can kind of think about Lexington, Kentucky is about that same population. So that's the kind of a city that we're talking about. It's located right there on the Aegean Sea. It's it's in a very beautiful part of the world. In fact, if you look up pictures of modern-day Thessalonica, it's a place we would like to go and visit. It is a beautiful old city full of history and still thriving to this day. Now, Paul planted the church there during his second missionary journey. If you go over to Acts 17, and I encourage you to read Acts 17 sometime in, in, the, in the next week or so to kind of get the background of this letter. But if you look at Acts 17, you, you see that Paul planted the church there in the midst of great adversity. Paul experienced in in Acts 16 what we call the Macedonian call. Paul's plan in that second missionary journey was to go deeper into Asia. But as he began that journey, it says that the, the Holy Spirit stopped him. That there were, there were, there was an indication from the Lord that he was not to go farther east into Asia, but instead that he experienced this, this vision in the night, this dream in which a man dressed as a Macedonian, they were known by particular clothing they were, particularly a, a hat. There was a Macedonian hat that was very familiar in those times that, that this Macedonian said, come over and bring the gospel to us. And by the way, historically, that's one of the most pivotal moments in Christian history. Because think how different the history of the world would be if instead of the Apostle Paul taking the gospel west into Europe, as he would, if he had continued in his own plan of going farther into Asia the history of the entire world that has been so shaped by the movement of Christianity would have been radically altered. See the hand of God in history. And, and, and as we consider this, this Macedonian call, he first goes to the city of, of Philippi. That's the first stop. And, and, you know, there was much adversity there in the city of Philippi. There, was, there were some who came to faith in Christ, and there were many that opposed the gospel. And they opposed the gospel so much that when Paul left Philippi and went to the second city, Thessalonica, that we're talking about this morning, that some of the folks from Philippi were so angry at Paul that they followed him to Thessalonica and stirred up trouble there as well. Paul knew how to make enemies. The gospel has a way of making friends, and the gospel has a way of making enemies. And that's still true to this day. And so Paul came to Thessalonica. He planted a thriving church. He experienced great opposition. But the gospel work continued. And so when Paul left Thessalonica under the cover of night, they snuck him out of the city because of the violent persecution that had, that had risen up. And he went on to the city of Berea and then on later to Corinth and other cities on that second missionary journey. His heart's concern was for the church at Thessalonica. If there's one thing you need to know about the Apostle Paul, it's that he loved the church of Christ. He had a deep and passionate concern. And and because of the short time that he got to spend planting the church in Thessalonica, his concern was, will it last? Will the work continue? Or will the devil come along and snatch up the seed that has been planted there? But the church did thrive. 
The church thrived because of the gospel. And by the way, church, let's be reminded today, we thrive only because of the gospel. We do not thrive because of our programs or because of our buildings or because of our finances. We do not thrive because of our political opinions or our economic status. We do not thrive because of anything but the gospel of Christ. Pastor Mark Howe said, transformed people constitute the church. To be a member of God's church means that you are the beneficiary of God's grace and peace. And so let's be reminded as we jump into this letter, this is not just a letter written to the church at Thessalonica in the first century. This is a letter meant for us that we might grow in grace and peace according to the gospel. So I've entitled today's message based on that first verse there. I've entitled it grace and peace. This was Paul's regular greeting in every one of his letters, all 13 letters that he wrote in the New Testament. He begins all of them with some form of this greeting, grace to you and peace. And this was a unique greeting that that Christians would give in that time. It was created by the Christian faith, a combination of what was the common Jewish greeting and the common Gentile greeting of the day. The Gentiles or or the Greeks would often greet each other with the word grace, which could also be translated greetings. That Greek word that that was that was their common greeting grace to you. Whereas for the Jewish peoples of the time, their common greeting was shalom or peace to you. And so when the church came together, Jews and Gentiles came together in one body, wasn't it so fitting that the common greeting that they would extend to one another was grace and peace? Bringing together those two things, which I believe serve as a wonderful summary of the gospel. That's what we're going to see here this morning. We see grace and peace coming together in Romans chapter 5 where Paul wrote, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have shalom. We have wholeness. We have completion in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So grace and peace come together again and again in the scriptures. They form just a, a, a succinct summary of the gospel. And so our theme this morning is this. If you're following along on your outline there, this will be our theme for the day. And really this summarizes the theme of this entire book in so many ways. Here's our theme. The gospel of God proclaims. Remember, the gospel is a proclamation. The gospel is a proclamation. It proclaims that the grace of God in Christ provides us peace with God through Christ and then produces in us a number of things that we're going to see this morning. We're going to talk about five themes that are produced in us by the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the lives of God's redeemed people. So again, The gospel of God is making a proclamation that the grace of God, God's unmerited favor toward us in Christ, provides us with peace with God through Christ and then produces these five themes that we're going to be seeing again and again as we move through this book. 
The first of these is that the gospel produces gospel-intensified prayer. This book of 1 Thessalonians is really bookended by the subject of prayer. It begins with Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians and ends with Paul's plea for the Thessalonians to pray for him and for the other churches. This book is very much bookended by prayer, but you also see prayer right at the very heart of this letter. We could really say that prayer permeates this letter. It's really all throughout the spirit of prayer. It's all throughout this letter as Paul seeks to encourage this church that is experiencing persecution and standing strong for the Lord. Let's look at one example. First Thessalonians 3. We'll get there in a few weeks from now. First Thessalonians 3, we see a prayer right at the heart of this book where Paul prays, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now consider this prayer. And think about the way that we tend to pray and what we tend to pray about. And I want you to notice a couple of things about Paul's prayer for the church. Notice how he prays that they would abound in love. That is a recurring thing that we're going to see in chapter 4 especially. Notice how he prays for their holiness. You know, as we begin to think about how we pray for one another in the church today, it seems that by and large... Our prayers are taken up with concerns about physical needs, concerns about physical safety, concerns about healing, and and many other things. And I want to encourage us to continue to pray for those things. The Bible would instruct us to do so. But I want you to notice here that Paul's primary concern is not for the safety of this church that was experiencing rampant persecution against followers of Jesus. He prays that they would abound in love for one another and that they would grow in holiness. My point is this, these prayers that we're going to see, they are packed full with spiritual concerns. That's not to say to us we need to stop praying about physical concerns. That is not what we're saying. But what we are saying is, could we balance that out with greater prayers for the spiritual concerns among us? How much are we praying that we as the people of God would abound in love for one another? How much are we praying that we as the people of God would progress in holiness in the fear of God? How much are we praying for the missionary work of the gospel as Paul will ask them in chapter 5 to pray for him and his co-workers as they continue to move the gospel forward in the world? How much of our prayer time is spent upon physical needs versus spiritual needs? Again, I'm not trying to pit those two against one another. I'm just trying to bring a balance as I believe the Bible would encourage us in our day. Ian Bounds, who wrote some wonderful things about prayer, he said, Prayer makes a godly man and puts within him the mind of Christ, the mind of humility, of self-surrender, of service, of pity, and of prayer. 
If we really pray, we will become more like God. Notice that promise. I think that is so true. If we really pray, we will become more like God or else we'll quit praying. And that is so true. And so Paul saturates this letter with prayer. The second thing that the gospel produces, though, not just a gospel intensified prayer, that the gospel also produces a gospel induced purity. We're going to see in this letter that holiness is a major theme of what Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians in. It's really all throughout uh, this letter. Holiness is a highlight, I would say, of this letter, of, of the necessity of holiness in the Christian life. And, and Paul elevates holiness to the highest of standards in the Christian life. Just as Jesus said, be holy as I am holy. So Paul was saying this issue of holiness is not something that we can ignore we can't afford to put this on the back burner and i would say to us church today we cannot afford to put holiness on the back burner in a culture that has has been consumed with rampant immorality we are residing right now in a, in a month that has been labeled as Pride Month, which is taking pride in rampant immorality in our culture. Businesses being encouraged to make their, their logos into a rainbow this month, not in order to exemplify the promise that God made to Noah, but doing so in order to exemplify pride and support in those who would engage in a lifestyle the Bible cannot commend. This is why holiness is necessary in the church, folks. Not so that we can look down our noses at those who are wrestling with sin, but so that we can truly, truly identify with them in the struggle. Because if we are pursuing holiness, there will be a war with sin. Unfortunately, over the last several decades in the church, we have increasingly run away from that war and just settled into a place of nominal purity and holiness. But notice Paul's words, 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. This is essential to the calling of our salvation, that there will be sanctification that comes along with it. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You're going to see the Holy Spirit mentioned again and again in this letter and always in connection at one point or another with this issue of holiness. The Holy Spirit is going to make God's people holy. That should be obvious to us, but but I think that's oftentimes lost on us in the current moment. We need to be reminded that Sanctification is absolutely essential in the Christian life. Those who are not being sanctified cannot be saved. Let me say that again in case we miss it. Those who are not being sanctified by the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit 
cannot be saved. These two things work hand in hand with one another. Sanctification is absolutely essential in the Christian life. Growth in holiness is not optional. I love what Kevin DeYoung said. He said, the will of God for your life is pretty straightforward. Be holy like Jesus. Is that the way we identify the will of God for our lives? That's exactly what Paul's going to say in this letter. The will of God is your sanctification. Be holy like Jesus by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. How different would our lives be if that became our mission statement? That my greatest desire is to be holy like Jesus. By the way, that's not holier than thou in any way. That is a holiness characterized by intense humility. Great faith and self-sacrificing love. Number three this morning, our third theme is that the gospel also will produce gospel-initiated persecution. Now, as we've talked about before, this is one of those gifts of the gospel that we would be very likely to want to return. We don't like the thought that the gospel produces suffering, and yet we see it over and over in the pages of Scripture. We happen to live in one of the anomalies of the history of the world in which we are not as Christians living under rampant persecution. That's been the history of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. And for most of the Christians in the world today, that continues to be the case. Perhaps we will see more of that in the time to come. But I just want us to notice this morning that that afflictions that come along with the gospel are simply assumed in this letter. Not as something strange, but as something normal. In fact, the Apostle Paul would challenge us to think this way, if you're not experiencing affliction because of your walk with Jesus Christ, maybe there's something wrong in your walk with Christ. I know that's a challenging word today, I know it's a challenging word for us to begin to think that way, but I believe, brothers and sisters, we need to begin to think that way, that if we're not experiencing challenges to our faith, perhaps there's a problem with our faith. Let me show you one example of this in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. How did they become imitators? Notice what he says next. For you suffered. You suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. Notice how he's heaping up these sufferings by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So we think about what it means for us to live that Christian life of imitation. And that is what the Christian life is, by the way. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The Christian life has always been a life of imitation. Is the element of suffering a part of that imitation? He says for the church at Thessalonica, this is how I know your faith is genuine because you're suffering for it. This is how I know that your hope is grounded fully and firmly in the gospel of Christ because it's costing you something. 
It's also a reminder that God has a very precise purpose in our pain. And that's pain in general, not just suffering for the gospel, for the life in the life of the believer. God has a particular and very precise purpose in our pain. He does not waste one ounce of the sufferings in our lives. He has a purpose there. And you're going to see some of that laid out in this letter. I'm not going to ruin it for us because we're going to come to this again and again. But, but be reminded this morning, if you are suffering, if you are experiencing affliction, if you are experiencing pain this morning, understand that if you belong to the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ, God is doing something in your suffering. He is accomplishing something that cannot be accomplished in any way. Our God is not some sadist who just wants to inflict suffering on us for no purpose. He uses our sufferings to accomplish his purposes. And as Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if there be any other way, let's go to plan B. We may pray the same way if we're willing to follow it up with Jesus' words, not my will, but yours be done. This changes the way we suffer because we see purpose in it. I love this old quote, one of C.S. Lewis's most famous quotes. He said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And we will see how God brings out that megaphone in the book of 1 Thessalonians to his glory and the good of the church. Fourthly, this morning, We see that the gospel produces gospel-infused partnerships. Gospel-infused partnerships throughout. This is such a relational letter. As you read, and I encourage you to take time through the week. You can read the entire book of 1 Thessalonians out loud and slowly in about 10 minutes. Uh, you can read it at a slow pace in about 10 minutes. So it's not a long commitment just to read all the way through it. And when you read all the way through it, what happens is you begin to see the fullness of it. And remember that this letter was a letter that when they received it there at the church of Thessalonica, that they would have read this publicly to all of the people of the church. In fact, at the end of this letter, Paul's going to see, say, be sure everyone in the church hears this. Make sure this is read to everybody. And so it's good for us to, to read it in that way. But what, would you, what you'll notice as you work through this letter is this is such a relational letter. Relationships are really in many ways the key to this letter. Understanding the relationships that were, had been formed by the gospel between Jews and Gentiles, between men and women, between folks of a high socioeconomic class and those of a low socioeconomic class, that, that the gospel had brought together such a diversity of people and had bound them together as brothers and sisters in Christ. These are familial relationships, but these are also, these are all also powerful relationships in the context of an army. Do you think about the church? God has called us to be an army. And an army has a purpose, a mission to complete. And so in that mission, Paul had been graced by God with many co-workers. One of those was Timothy, whom he sent back to check on the church at Thessalonica. 
He mentions this in 1 Thessalonians 3 where he says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, notice the familial relationship, and God's co-worker. There's the mission. So yes, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, but also would it change our mindset if we began to recognize that we are also co-workers in this gospel ministry? There is a mission that has been given to us as the family of God, co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. We're going to see a variety of relationships, relationships between churches, relationships between uh, different ministers of the gospel. And all of these become very prominent in this letter. We remind ourselves, as this letter does, that the church is given many one another commands. We're going to see several of these in this letter. He challenges them to, to be about the process of encouraging one another, of abounding in love for one another, of praying for one another, of joining one another in the work of gospel ministry. We're going to see all kinds of one another commands in this letter. But let's be reminded, these are not just given to people in general. These are given to the church. These are given to the called out, gathered together people of God who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, rescued from sin and death and hell and the grave, and given a mission which is not just to sit and stew in the sanctuary until Jesus comes back. We have been given a mission in the world, but it's a co-mission that we do together. Pastor James Grant said, grace and peace create a new reality. This gospel creates a new reality, a new ordering of human relationships. Grace is not just for Gentiles, though that was their favorite greeting. Peace is not just for Jews, though that was their favorite greeting. The whole community receives grace and peace. And then when we receive grace and peace, what do we do? We then share grace and peace with others. And that's why Paul says here in chapter 1, you didn't just receive this gospel, you've been a part of sharing this gospel. By the way, if you've truly received the gospel, the overflow of that is you can't help but share the gospel. Because it's good news. And good news is meant to be shared. Finally this morning, finally, the gospel, the gospel produces I would call a gospel insured parousia. And you go, what in the world is a parousia? Well, it's a Greek word. And I wanted to use it this morning. Not that I'll sound smart like I know Greek. I know very little at this point, this far removed from seminary. But I will encourage you to understand this word this morning. It's used four times in this letter. It's used four times by Jesus in Matthew 24 as he speaks about his second coming. At the end of every one of these five chapters in 1 Thessalonians, we see a reminder that Jesus is coming again. And that's what the parousia is. It's his coming. He's reminding them like an exclamation point at the end of every chapter. Don't forget, church, Jesus is coming again. And he was encouraging the Thessalonians in the first century to live in expectation of Jesus coming again. 
And he is encouraging us in the 21st century as followers of Jesus Christ to live in expectation of Jesus coming again. Why? So we'll just have pie in the sky, by in the by, live our head in the clouds. No, because if you live in expectation of Jesus coming again, it changes everything in your life. This is the hope that the Bible talks about again and again. It's not just a hope so, it's an assurance of faith. The second coming is so central to this letter we're going to talk a lot about it this summer, and I'm looking forward to it. And I know, I know many would want to know, well, lay it out for us, Pastor. How's it all going to go down? But to do so would miss the point. Because Paul's point is that we should simply be encouraged by the fact that Christ is coming again. We get so caught up in how it's going to go down. Are we going to go through the tribulation period? What's going to happen with the millennium? All the questions that encircle the second coming of Christ. And yet Paul's focus is not to answer all those questions. His focus is this. Church, be encouraged. Be encouraged because of the fact of faith that Jesus is coming again. Second coming is central. One instance of it is First Thessalonians five, the very end of this book. Paul's final prayer for them. He prays now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The connection between His coming and our holiness. You see, living in expectation of the coming of Jesus Christ changes the way that we walk the Christian life out. The second coming changes the way that we pray. Consider the last prayer of the Bible is, Come soon, Lord Jesus. It changes the way that we pray. The truth, the fact, the reality of Jesus coming again, it changes the way that we pursue holiness. That's the connection right here in chapter 5. He's saying pursue holiness. Why? Because Jesus is coming again. The Holy One is coming for you. So pursue holiness. The second coming changes the way that we endure persecution. You see, this is why it's a great hope for those who are enduring rampant and violent and difficult persecution. Their great hope is my king is coming for me. This is not all there is. See, the problem in the American church has been for so long, we're comfortable with what is in the here and now. And I'm so thankful that in the last year, the Lord has made us greatly uncomfortable with the here and now that we would long for something better. Because Jesus is coming again, we do relationships differently. Because I understand that my relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ are going to last forever. Far beyond family relationships that I have with folks who don't know Jesus. Far beyond co-worker relationships with those who don't know Jesus. This family is an eternal family here in the church. Brothers and sisters 
united by faith in God our Father, brought to faith by the sacrificial death of Jesus the Son, united together and sealed by the Holy Spirit. This is our primary family. And living in light of the second coming of Jesus will change the way that we do relationships in the church. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. And finally, living in light of the second coming of Christ just causes us to have our hope placed in the right, in the right object. See, our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. I know we say that a lot and we sing it. I know there's a lot of things that we, we, we make this statement. But you need to see here, First Thessalonians, this, this gospel of God is reminding us we have one hope. We have one hope. And, and we live in a culture that is constantly urging us to put our hope, to put our trust, to put all of our expectancy in something other than Christ and Christ alone. We have been urged in the last year to put our hope in a vaccine. We have been urged to put our hope in a new president. We have been urged to put our hope in such a variety of different things. And yet understand clearly, church, Our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. And everything else in which we would stake our hope is a vain hope. It's empty. It's meaningless. At best, it's temporal and temporary. But this hope will not disappoint us. It's the hope the author of Hebrews speaks about. And we'll close with this. In Hebrews chapter 6, the The author of Hebrews talks much about this hope that we have in Christ. And he says this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Hope. That's what he's talking about. The this there is our hope in Christ. We have this. This is not a hope so. It's a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters in to the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He is our hope. He is our hope. And so I would ask you this morning, what are you trusting in? We are created by God as a people who will put our hope and faith and trust in some object. I would encourage you today, the only object worthy of your hope is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Everything else is a vain hope. It will at best give you temporary satisfaction, but He will give you eternal satisfaction. A hope that will not disappoint is found in Him alone. Let's pray together. Father, we want to remind ourselves of the gospel this morning. This gospel of grace and peace. That we have been given grace by you, our holy God. You have not treated us as our sins deserve. Instead, you have cast all of our sins upon your perfect son. 
who died a sacrificial and substitutionary death on the cross that we might be redeemed. This is grace and His glorious. We also remind ourselves that because of what Christ did for us at the cross, that we now have peace with God. We now are invited into a vital and living relationship with our Holy Father. We now have access to you. We now are invited into a relationship with you through Christ. No other mediator needed. We can come directly to your throne of grace with confidence as children redeemed by the blood of Christ. Grace and peace and these things produce all these other glorious realities. So Father, teach us to pray. Lead us to pursue holiness. Help us to endure persecution. Engage us with gospel-shaped partnerships and relationships. And cause us to live in light of your soon return. Father, I pray this morning that as we come to the end of this service, that we might consider where our hope is placed. And for those who would be sitting here this morning who have not yet put their hope firmly and fully in Jesus Christ, I pray that they might hear the call of the gospel this morning to turn from their sins and to trust in the one name given under heaven by which we might be saved. To trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. He who has done everything for us that we could by no means do for ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name.